If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Who were some of the most influential popes of the Middle Ages? What did you have to do to earn the title of anti-pope? And which pope was believed to keep a pet demon? For our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Kev Lochin spoke to historian Brett Whalen to find out more about the fascinating role of the papacy in the medieval era. Who, in your perspective, is the first person for whom the title of Pope is historically documented? That's a question we've had from Lewis Palou on Instagram. Sure, it's a, it's a great question. And it's it's a little tricky in the sense that there isn't really like one pope that marks the definitive point, right? Where like that person becomes the pope. If you asked a medieval pope, they would have a clear answer to that question, right? And they would tell you it was St. Peter. And so we shouldn't forget the idea behind the whole idea of the papacy is that Jesus delegated his authority over the church to Peter. And Peter then went and founded the church in Rome and then passed that authority down to the next bishop and so on and so forth, right? In fact, looking back historically, early on in the uh, Christian church, almost any bishop could be called Pope. If you were a bishop, it means it's from Papa, meaning father. And any bishop could be seen as like the father of their local Christian community. But uh, around the like 500s, 600s, 
So early Middle Ages, the popes of Rome are becoming important enough and are really starting to have a, a level of authority over the, the Western Church and Europe that the title of pope starts to be reserved for them. And that, so it's around the like 500, 600s where you start to see the idea, like there's actually one pope, one papa, and that's the bishop of Rome. That's the point. I mean, I had a question from uh, Nicholas Sergis on Facebook who asked kind of when the Pope shifts from being this kind of primus into Paris, first and what's equals, as you're kind of putting into being, it's reserved for Bishop Rome. This is the point then, that kind of early 500s. Yeah. And the idea that the Pope should be kind of one bishop among equals or the kind of head bishop among equals never quite goes away. And later on in this discussion, we might get back to that point at the end of the Middle Ages, when you see this idea reemerge that, you know, all bishops ultimately should come together as a group and make real important decisions about the church. And that seems to have also been the case early on in like the second, third, fourth centuries. But it is around the, yeah, fourth, fifth centuries, really the early Middle Ages, right, that you start to see this emphasis winning out amongst Christians, particularly in, in Western Europe. I mean, if you talk to a Greek Christian over in Constantinople, they might never give up the idea that actually the Pope is just the uh, primus interpares, and maybe not even the primus, right? But, but certainly in like what we call the Catholic Church, by the early Middle Ages, in the 400s, 500s, you, you see the idea coming out, yeah, that, that the Pope is the head of the Catholic Church. Could you give us a very top-line view, Because we're talking about the medieval papacy. What window are we looking at here? And then, very top-line, how is the role of the Pope changing in that period? I'm always fascinated as an historian about questions of a periodization, as we call it, the way we like divide up history. And I'd remind everyone listening to this that the whole idea of the Middle Ages is a construct, right? It was like 16th, 17th century historians who were looking back and started to divide up history in this way. No one woke up and was like, hey, it's the Middle Ages, right? The traditional idea here in old-fashioned terms would be that around the 400s, 500s, when the Roman Empire starts to fall apart, and I'll put fall in scare quotes, right? That could be a whole other podcast that the Roman Empire doesn't really fall, kind of slowly transforms into these barbarian kingdoms that we consider early medieval Europe. But traditionally speaking, when the Roman Empire's kaput, around, say, 500, up until around the year 1500. And you can look at a bunch of different events, right? The inventing, invention of the printing press, the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, the Protestant Reformation, the, the so-called discovery of the Americas. There's all these things that happen in the 1400s, early 1500s that are seen as inaugurating the modern age. So medieval would be that kind of thousand-year period of time from about 500 to 1500. And that's sort of the way views of the papacy change. On one level, there's a lot of continuity, right? The idea that the Pope is the heir to St. Peter, possesses his power, the power of the keys to the kingdom of heaven, never goes away. That is the fundamental basis of papal authority throughout the Middle Ages. On the other hand, as you can imagine, and as we'll probably talk about during this discussion, at any given point in time, the papacy really is responding to all sorts of different historical events and different changes and the way that that power is being expressed the way it's being realized the way that it like matters or like doesn't matter the limits that are placed upon it that really really varies depending on if it's the 8th century or the 11th i mean a thousand years is a long period of time right so uh the medieval papacy is actually a bunch of different papacies in some ways in the way it plays out historically 
Well, let's talk about some of those different papacies. I mean, not long after that, there's a period which I didn't know much about, and I hope you can tell me about, called the Papal Dark Age. A very exciting time to know. But also some of it's kind of like uh, monikers. It's known as the rule of the harlots in some quarters. In other cases, the pornocracy. My favourite title for a papacy era. (laughs) What is going on here? Yeah, this is, you know, the whole idea of the pornocracy, right? Or the papal dark ages, it's too good to let go of in some ways, right? It's a view looking back, right? So if you, you know, I mentioned before, right around the year, say 500, the Roman Empire is having problems. You have these new barbarian kingdoms being established in the early Middle Ages. And the biggest and best of these barbarian kingdoms winds up turning into the Carolingian Empire under Charlemagne, right? A really famous historical figure, crowned emperor in the year 800. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are interested in and know about um, Charlemagne and the Carolingian Empire as a period of, of relative like stability and cultural flourishing around the 800s, right? But the, the whole idea of the, the Papal Dark Ages does tie into this bigger picture that the Charlemagne's grandsons have a bunch of civil wars amongst themselves. This is when the early Vikings start showing up, in, including places like Lindisfarne and sacking monasteries and things like that, right? And all of Europe in the 900s, late 800s, 900s, is uh, undergoing a kind of period of crisis. There's invaders coming in. There's civil war within the former Carolingian Empire. I don't want to say things are falling apart, but there's a lot of a lot of stresses being placed on institutions around Europe. And one of those is the papacy. That's the period of the Papal Dark Ages, right? That the popes of Rome in the 900s are probably at one of the most limited points of their influence over wider European affairs. They're really just mired down in the local, somewhat sometimes nasty politics of the city of Rome. There's all these aristocratic families in the city fighting for control of the city politically and its resources. And that's when you see these popes getting put in who are really part of these power squabbles amongst these Roman aristocratic families. And yeah, you know, that's when it gets into these popes that we might find a little questionable in terms of their qualifications for the office having like debauched parties in in the Lateran church and assassinating their rivals or being assassinated. So everywhere in Europe is having a kind of a period of downgrading around the 10th century and the papacy's no no exception. Well, some of our listeners have asked questions to delve into that. So let's jump on those. Zeus99 on Instagram would like to know how many popes were murdered or assassinated in this period and by whom. I wonder if you could talk us through some examples. Yeah, no, I wish I had the exact number. It depends on who you ask. But the question is a good one in the sense of there is a lot of chaos going on in in papal succession at that point. John Twelfth is one of my favorites. I think he's accused of sleeping around. He's accused of having like a a pet demon that he talks to. Another famous moment is the Cadaver Synod. Again, very late 800s, you have a Pope Formosius who is elected Pope and then is tossed out, right? And after he dies, some of his political enemies, basically, who were already opposed to him when he was pope, they exhume his body and put it on trial for a bunch of sins and crimes that he had supposedly committed. And so the idea is that you have his corpse actually like in a courtroom in the Lateran church being put on trial. And supposedly there was like a deacon behind him saying the words that the pope would be responding to questioning by the lawyers. And uh, eventually his body's like thrown in the Tiber. And uh, it's a sensational story, but also, I think is indicative, right, of the kind of nasty local politics that were going on at the at the time. It sounds very much less God's representative on earth and more politics at this time. I mean, I think we always need to kind of wrap our heads around the idea 
that the Pope is on one level a supreme spiritual authority over souls of believers everywhere, right? Possessing the keys to the kingdom of heaven, granted down through St. Peter to the Pope. On the other hand, the Pope is preeminently a political figure. And part of this, I should, uh, again, stress is when the Roman Empire in the early Middle Ages starts to no longer function in, in Western Europe, you know, you don't have Roman governors anymore. You don't have Roman armies anymore. You don't have Roman tax collectors anymore. One of the institutions that steps in to really provide basic social structure, political structure to medieval Europe is like church institutions, right? Local bishops, abbots and monasteries, parish priests, the church, which is really just like churches all over Europe and different communities, become some of the largest landowners. And the papacy is no exception. In, in the early Middle Ages, the Pope is the largest landowner on the Italian peninsula. The papacy has estates all the way down to Sicilia and over in like Sardinia and Corsica, right? The Pope is the direct lord starting in the early Middle Ages of big chunks of central Italy, which become known as the, the papal states, right? And so even as the Pope's always a spiritual leader, much like bishops all around Western Europe in the Middle Ages, he's a landlord, he's a local temporal ruler, a worldly ruler, he's a political figure. And, and to your point, you know, in, again, in, in the period of the Papal Dark Ages, the papacy is really just caught up in these nasty local politics in the city, in the city of Rome, with these local families vying for power. And if, if you want to control the city of Rome, you're going to want to control the, the bishopric. It's the preeminent spot of authority in the city of Rome at that time period. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Am I, am I right in thinking it's like these kind of events that are kind of assigned? They're not, at that time, they're not that unusual. Like some of the popes are quite short-lived in that period. Yeah, and I will mention, at the time when the Cadaver Synod happened, there were people, or like observers of this, that were like, wow, this is messed up. <laughs> I mean, at the time, even, the, people were aware that the Pope was supposed to be held to a higher standard, always. People in the Middle Ages would, would never lose sight of the fact that the shepherd of the Christian flock 
was supposed to be a preeminent spiritual figure. And so you know, when you had popes assassinating each other and popes getting poisoned and uh, you know corpses put on trial, it, it would raise criticisms at the time, right? And, and that opens to something we might talk about later, m- maybe, is this idea in the 11th century of uh, what's sometimes called the papal reform movement, which was in many ways a response to the papal dark ages, right? People at the time recognized we maybe need to run the, the business of the papacy a little differently and recognize that the Pope sh- should be a better spiritual leader, not just mired down in a lot of these nasty uh, squabbles. You said something quite interesting there, because I realized popes were being assassinated, but the popes were assassinating each other. So were people, were popes or papal claimants, I suppose, removing their forebears? You could always depose a pope. Trundling someone off to a monastery is always a great way in the Middle Ages of getting one of your opponents a- out of the way. A little less, uh, a little less final than killing them. Kings would do this too, right? It's like you stick your your uh, rival in a monastery. But yeah, assassination is always on the table. Certainly. I mean, I don't know how many popes are. Ever, I don't have numbers. Like how many popes are accused of actually killing another pope i think what would happen a lot of times is if two popes are are, if you have two people claiming to be pope or one gets pushed out it would kind of open up more of a pr campaign and who can get more people behind them to back them up and typically the loser would just wind up going off to some obscure place and probably maintaining the i'm the real pope (laughs) until the day they died maybe of natural causes we'll talk about that in a minute but um while we're talking about uh popes dying it seems a good time to bring in a question from catherine 0411 on instagram who just wants to know was rome a dangerous place after a pope died because in the modern vatican there's processes in places this sounds much more feral almost yeah no and that's a your comment about the the modern vatican is is a good one that there are these procedures now right the college of cardinals come together and you know you have the whole like they meet in the conclave and the, the puff of smoke comes up to that habemus what is it habemus papam we have we have a pope they they make the declaration that again that actually that basic model of how to elect a pope gets started in the 11th century in the middle ages the period before that 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 we're talking about of like the the papal dark ages right say in like the ninth late ninth tenth century you don't have those clear rules right and so a lot of times the election of a pope might very well be up to these local families that are at each other's throats. Yeah, that kind of fer- feral vibe you're getting, I think has to do with the local aristocratic families fighting in Rome and trying to get their family member into that position of being Pope. And everyone once in a while too, there, there still are, say around the year 1000, right? You do have Roman emperors, the, these kings of Germany that are also emperors. So every once in a while, one of them will show up on the scene and basically be like, nope, all right, this guy's Pope, right? So the emperor sees it as his position to step in this is what happens with Charlemagne, actually, before he's crowned emperor back in 800. The pope at the time, Leo III, is having a dust up with one of these rival families in Rome. And supposedly they try to blind him and they drive him out of the city of Rome. Yeah, well, yeah, that's another way to get rid of one of your political opponents, you know, short of killing them. You can always blind them, which kind of puts them in a position to no longer really be eligible for, for the office of emperor or king or pope or whatever, right? So they kind of semi-blind him or they don't quite manage to pull it off. And he flees Rome, goes, meets up with Charlemagne in northern Italy, and then actually goes back to Rome with Charlemagne. And that's the point where Charlemagne comes in with the boots on the ground and kind of puts Leo back, installs him back in Rome and puts all of the people that tried to blind Leo on trial. And then it's shortly after that that Leo crowns Charlemagne as emperor on Christmas Day 800. And, you know, you see this from time to time too. The emperor will step in and put his preferred candidate in 
settle things down. But of course, when the emperor leaves and goes back to Germany, that's when all the local families and the machinations start, can start up again. Okay, so this sounds like uh, abject chaos. Let's talk a bit about the papal reform movement. And I suppose that would lead into how does the pope or the office of the pope morph from this thing where it's kind of under the thumb of these families and almost kind of like a puppet into a powerful, not a spiritual leader, but a secular leader as well, because you mentioned the papal states already. Yeah, that, that doesn't change. And that, that twin role of the Pope as a spiritual leader and a political leader certainly doesn't change. But what, what does change in the 11th century is some of the circumstances around how the papacy governs. And this is part of a broader transformation that in the 11th century, this is a period where the economy is kind of taking off in Europe and cities are growing. It's a real vital kind of energetic period of, of the Middle Ages. And so the papacy, like a lot of institutions around Europe, is, is starting to kind of expand and to grow. You see a big uptick in like record keeping at this time. This is, by the way, local reference uh, 1066 when William the Conqueror invades England, right? And you see the beginning of this whole Anglo-Norman kingship in England that it, you have like the Doomsday Book, which is an example of, of, of a big census happening. Right? So the papacy, likewise at this time, is undergoing the, these same processes of like institution building and expansion. And also... A kind of a new ideology at the time of, of people surrounding the papacy that start to realize if we're going to make the Pope into a true spiritual governor of the church in Europe and really theoretically everywhere, we need to change how we do business. So in 1059, for example, the clergy in Rome, the cardinal clergy, the bishops and the priests who are associated with these really important churches uh, around Rome, they, they create the election degree of 1059. And that election decree is the one that says it's the cardinal clergy, the cardinal bishops, the cardinal priests, you know, not these local Roman families and not the emperor, which by the way, maybe imagine how the emperor felt about this. They're not the ones that elect a pope. It'll be the clergy in Rome that'll elect a pope. And that's just one really good example of an attempt to reform and change the fundamental workings of the papacy to get it out from under this, you know, what do you call it, kind of feral, <laughs> feral environment. Yeah. Why is that accepted, though, that change? Because if I was like one of the families and I'd been controlling popes for generations, would I want to let that go? That's a great question. And it's on one level, it's like not right. This doesn't happen overnight. And it's easy to forget that after the election degree of 1059, you, you still have all sorts of nasty squabbles over who's going to be Pope and anti-Pope. So on, on one level, they don't give up easily and they never quite go away. And, and by the way, the emperors still like to have a great deal of say over who, who gets to be Pope when they come down to Italy from Germany. But kind of slowly over time, the winning position is this idea of reforming the papacy and changing the way it does governance. And I, I think one reason for that is because there is a general consensus and a general agreement that the papacy should be a well-functioning institution to govern the church, should be spiritually respectable, and that popes should not be elected willy-nilly by local families or assassinating each other. Or So I think what you're sensing there is a kind of general agreement that the papacy should be held to a higher standard. And so you do get a lot of buy-in to that. And one, one thing I did want to remind uh, everyone too is that the papacy's authority in the Middle Ages always is kind of dependent upon buy-in, buy-in from Christians all around Europe, that ultimately the popes are not just kind of top-down telling everyone, like, I'm the head of the church, but people all around Europe for their own local reasons 
And people go on pilgrimage to Rome, right? People visit Rome. They go there when they have court, sort of like court disputes in the church. Rome is the final court of appeals. I mean, let's say you and I were both elected. There was a fight, right? And we were both elected Archbishop of Canterbury. And, you know, some people were backing you and some people are backing me and we're fighting it out. Ultimately, what we might do is appeal to the Bishop of Rome. And one of us would be unhappy with the verdict, right? The Pope might weigh in for you or weigh in for me. But when we appeal to the papacy, we would then be reinforcing the idea that the Pope is the ultimate head of the church. Not because the Pope is telling us that, but because we want to get a favorable judgment. I don't want the papal court to be a mess at that point. I want the Pope to have a well-running church and a papal curia. And so you see what I'm getting at? That like You can understand that how it was in some people's vested interest to actually clean up the way the papacy was doing business. You mentioned a couple of interesting things there, but one of them was about like you would appeal to the Pope and the Pope has this kind of power almost to, you know, to make rulings and another is powers excommunication. I just wonder if we could talk a bit more about what kind of powers the Pope had at this time and also a little bit of why anyone listened. And as I just mentioned, a lot of it is kind of buy-in, right, from people who are looking for decisions and viewing Rome as the final court of appeals. So there's the kind of bottom-up aspect to this. One thing I should mention as well, I mean, Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, right? And even after the empire's gone, there still is this symbolic meaning of the city of Rome. It, it never really hurts. Like, all roads lead to Rome, right? That was the idea, like, back in the Roman Empire period. And on one level, that doesn't change. Uh, Pope Leo I mentions Rome's spiritual empire under the popes. And I've always loved that expression, right? That you had a worldly empire under, you know, Nero and Caligula and all these these folks. And But now there is a spiritual empire. So all roads are still leading to Rome, but just now as the, the head of the church, not the head of this worldly empire. The, the relics of St. Peter and St. Paul are supposedly still in Rome, right? But to this day, right? The holy remains. So Rome is a super important pilgrimage site. And that brings people to Rome. So there's all of these kind of symbolic forms of prestige that I think really elevate the papacy's authority. But to your point, there are points where the Pope does want to intervene. So let's say again, for the sake of argument, you know, you and I are in a fight over who's going to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, and we appeal to Rome, and the Pope sends back a judgment that it's me. I, I am the duly elected <laughs> Archbishop of Canterbury. And, you know, you might go along with that, but let's say you don't. And so you've got a couple monks backing you and the Bishop of York's in your corner because he doesn't like me, right? And if you kept at it, and then I would be like writing letters back to the Pope, you know, Kev will not stop and accept your judgment. At that point, a letter might show up from Rome and it'd take a while, right? It, it's, you know, say six months later. And it would be like, until Kevin gives up his claim to the Archbishop of Can being the Archbishop of Canterbury, he will be under a state of excommunication. And so at this point, the prelate of York has a decision to make. Does he still want to stay in your corner? You've been excommunicated, right? He's not supposed to eat with you go to mass with you. There's also the interdict, which is basically when a whole town or community could be excommunicated. So I don't know, let's say there's an abbot who is backing you up and he's supporting you. The Pope might be like, well, that monastery is now under interdict. So all of the monks in that monastery basically can't get communion, can't be buried in the, in the churchyard. So at some point, I feel like a lot of the support for you is going to crumble as this goes on. And it might take months, it might take a year, you know, excommunication could be a kind of like social death, right? That, that's an immense amount of pressure. 
Yeah, I feel chastened. Yeah, are you? Yeah, are you ready to throw in the towel <laughs> at this point? Right. Speaking of buy-in, we probably should talk about in this period of our 11th century, perhaps the ultimate moment buy-in, at least in my mind, it comes with Urban and the Counts of Clermont. I don't want to delve too much into like the entire First Crusade, but it would be really great to talk about why Urban issues the call and kind of just like that change that allows him to do so and get that buy-in. Yeah, the First Crusade is, yeah, that's that's a whole subject unto itself and one that's always really fascinated me. One way to think about the Crusade which uh, 1095, Pope Urban II gives this sermon at Claremont in southern France, calling for Christians to go forth and take back Jerusalem, right? And it is a kind of show-stopping, dramatic demonstration of papal authority. And it really does emerge out of this reform movement we were talking about before, that for probably a good 40 years beforehand, you'd seen the popes of Rome pushing this kind of reform agenda. They had gotten into a big fight with the German emperor over who ultimately controlled the right to like appoint bishops. That, that fight was still going on, by the way. Urban, Urban can't even actually go to the city of Rome when he's starting the first crusade because there's an anti-pope in Rome at that time that's backed by the German emperor. And so again, you know, Urban has still his problems on his hands, but by that period, the papal authority has emerged out of this reform moment with greater kind of reach than ever before. And I think Urban very much knew what he was doing in that regard. It's kind of a display of his own authority within Europe to call for this expedition to go and take back Jerusalem. Uh, one thing I'll mention, too, is uh, another part of the kind of broader sentiments of reform in the 11th century, the same reform that led to these changes in the papacy, is the uh, peace of God, which was an attempt by like bishops and abbots and, and some lords to limit violence within Europe in the 11th century, right? This is the period when you have the, the castles and the knights riding around on horseback, having all of their fights and a, a lot of this kind of like feudal violence, we could, we could call it. And the church is looking to create rules, right? Don't fight during Easter, don't attack monasteries, don't assault widows and unarmed combatants and things like this. And Urban, right before he declares what becomes known as the First Crusade, talks about the peace and truce of God. He's basically like, all of you knights should stop fighting each other, stop attacking the church, stop beating up on peasants. Instead, I have a better idea. Take your swords and go out and use them for this different purpose of going and freeing Jerusalem. So the peace and truce of God and these ideas of reform, this kind of momentum that the papacy had that had been building up over the course of the 11th century really all kind of just gel at that moment. And supposedly everyone yells out, God wills it, right? That's the deus volt, God wills it. And so that, that it's a great moment to really see the kind of upswing of papal authority in the Middle Ages from that point forward. We should talk about antipopes. And I think a question I'll get us on from this comes in from MHF quickly, who asks, what are the causes of the great schism? Yeah, so um, there's kind of two big schisms or schisms. Apparently pronouncing it both ways is, is correct. But uh, there, there's a big break between the uh, Greek ortho what we call the Greek Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, which is sometimes called the Great Schism. And again, by the way, this really comes to a head in 1054, which is not a coincidence. It's that same church reform period we talked about earlier, where the popes of Rome are newly asserting their authority and managed to tick off the patriarchs of Constantinople, which kind of sets in motion this rupture that can sometimes be called the Great Schism. Moving forward in time into the 14th century, you have what's sometimes called the Great Western Schism, which might be what you're 
uh, listeners asking about. And this was a period where if the reform popes like Urban II, we just talked about, if they're on the kind of ascendancy in terms of the pope's power in the Middle Ages, in the 14th century, you start to get over that hump and start to have a period where the popes are having less and less power relative to European rulers and monarchs. And one pope in particular, Boniface VIII, gets into this kind of throwdown match with the French king, Philip IV, comes out on the losing side of it. And then after he dies, he actually gets like arrested by these kind of French soldiers and mercenaries who beat him up and he, he winds up passing away shortly thereafter. The next pope is French. And this is when the popes wind up basically staying in Southern France. And this is the period known as the Avignon papacy because the popes wind up establishing this massive palace there and basically move the papacy to Avignon, right? And the whole time they're like, well, we should, we really should be back in Rome, but they never quite relocate and go back in part because they don't want to deal with some of the nasty local politicking in Rome, by the, by the way, that's kind of still going on. But eventually, what is it like in the late, like 1377, I think 1378, right in the late 14th century, one Pope Gregory XI finally goes back to Rome. Because the whole time they're like, we should move back to Rome. Ultimately, the Pope belongs in Rome and he dies there. And, you know, our whole thing we were talking about before with the, the Archbishop of Canterbury that we were rivals for. Actually, you get a situation like that. Uh, some of the clergy are in Rome and they elect a new pope. But meanwhile, there's a bunch of clergy back in Avignon still. They're still back there running the papal bureaucracy and all that. And they elect a pope. And so that is a point where you suddenly have a pope in Avignon and a pope in Rome. And while there have been many like anti-popes over the Middle Ages off and on, this was something a little different. You didn't just have like an anti-pope. You had two popes, one in Rome, one in Avignon, both with a pretty well-developed court, like a, a kind of bureaucratic center for their papacy, both with cardinals on their side. So it isn't just like, you know, pope, anti-pope. It's almost like an anti-papacy. There's like two kind of functioning heads. And of course, the, the politics get into it again, because you can imagine the French back the Avignon pope and the English, who are in like the Hundred Years' War with the French, surprise, back the Roman pope. And so you see different kingdoms around Europe kind of picking a pope, right? And sort of backing a pope for political reasons. So all of Europe kind of becomes divided over this. And this is what becomes known as the Great Western Schism. It says something quite interesting there. The French kings obviously about the French pope. How much did the nationality of the cardinal who becomes pope matter in terms of, firstly, to the monarchs, but also to how they acted with Europe? That's a really next level question. And I, in some of my recent research, I became fascinated with cardinal bishops. I was writing a book on uh, these two 13th century popes, Gregory the Ninth and Innocent the Fourth, and became obsessed with these cardinals who a lot of times are the ones that they're serving as legates. So they're basically like the diplomats for the papacy who go out, at, you know, and visit foreign courts and try to extend the pope's influence into various corners of Europe. And I mean, I don't think there's any one answer to that question, but if you had a German cardinal who still had tons of family back in Germany and tons of connections to some of these local clergies, I think you do sometimes get a sense that these cardinals have a, a variety of interests, right? And might be just as much as in, interested in representing some of their, say, family connections. And and particularly by the later Middle Ages, I think you're, you are getting more and more of a sense that, you know, the kingdom of France has a church that is really kind of the French church and England has an English church. And th these national identities in the late Middle Ages really start to matter. And I think at that point, you're going to you're going to see cardinals that 
are maybe identifying more as a French cardinal or an English cardinal by birth. And of course, eventually you get to the Protestant Reformation and you actually have a separate English church, right, with the Protestant break. But already by the later Middle Ages, these national identities are really mattering. How did the popes react to Reformation? I can't imagine it would be a particularly friendly development. Yeah, I think it kind of caught them off guard in some ways. You know, one thing to always remember is that uh, throughout the Middle Ages, when the Pope said jump, people didn't just say how high, right? There were always voices of critique and criticism about problems or corruption with the papacy. There's this great short poem. It's called The Gospel According to the Marks of Silver. It's from the 13th century. And it's kind of a parody of the gospel of, I think, Matthew. And the idea is this poor cleric shows up and he wants to... He wants to appeal to the Pope, as we were discussing before, but the cardinals won't let him in because he doesn't have any money to bribe them, right? And, and that's just one example of people are always on the lookout for abuse and corruption. But yeah, with, with Martin Luther, 1517, the 95 Theses, there is a critique of papal authority on a kind of level like never before. And it, no, I think the popes are not happy about it. I don't think they're at first they're all that particularly concerned. It's nothing new. So there's some monk named Martin in Germany who's criticizing us. You know, what's the big deal? We'll deal with it. But of course, Luther, one of the big things again is he has the backing of these German princes, right? And the politics have changed enough that critics of the papacy have the backing of local kings and local rulers and it, and it shields them right to a degree to, to to criticize the popes to an extent where it, it can eventually lead to various communities being willing to just kind of walk away walk away and just be like you know what i don't recognize you as the the head of the church anymore and that goes on for centuries and then you get all the wars of religion with protestants and catholics fighting and killing each other over this and that that story doesn't end in the middle ages we need to dial back very slightly because we've talked about anti-popes uh, in passing quite a lot, but I just want to be really clear on this point. An anti-pope is a rival claimant to the papacy. I've got that right. That's right. That's right. It wasn't just within that period of the Western schism, schism, right? It was, it's something that's happened throughout the history of the papacy. Yeah. I mean, at any given point, there might, if there's a contested election or, you know, as I mentioned before, every once in a while, emperors might get involved and try to appoint a pope, right? And so that's what happened with um in the period of Urban. A little bit before that, Gregory VII, who was a pope in the 1070s, had gotten into this big fight with the German emperor, Henry IV. And he excommunicated Henry. Eventually, Henry marches on Rome and drives Gregory out of the city. He dies in exile in Salerno. But at that point, Henry basically installs a pope who takes the name Clement II. Clement is around for, oh goodness, like 20 some odd years. Some bishops back him, some don't. The reason he's the anti-pope is he loses. The, the anti-popes are basically the losers, right? At the time, they see themselves as popes. So there's like two popes and they both have their their backers. Eventually, one of them loses steam and then gets kind of written down into history as, well, obviously that was the anti-pope. If, if Clement had won out, then I guess Urban would have been the anti-pope, right? That's really interesting because I had come in with the impression that anti-pope was kind of the one who was probably not in Rome and didn't have as much influence, but you're saying it's really a case of history is written by the victors. It is. I mean, Clement is actually the one in Rome for most of the late like 1080s, 1090s. When, when Urban declares the First Crusade, 
Clement is actually in Rome. Interestingly, here's an example. I was just reading about this recently as reminding myself about this. The, the first crusade thing paid dividends really quickly for Urban because when some of the crusaders are marching down on their way to Jerusalem through Italy and they go through Rome, guess what they do? They, they drive Clement out of the city. And so Urban's rival Pope is kind of pushed out by the, some of these crusaders on their way to, to Jerusalem. So, you know, again, you, you can kind of see the shrewd move in terms of the internal politicking for Urban. But yeah, at any given point in time, there's the possibility of a dispute over who the elected Pope is. And one of those popes will typically wind up on the losing side, and then they become remembered as as the anti-pope. And there's also this great thing, too, that anti-pope fits together quite nicely with anti-Christ. And so in the later Middle Ages, you get all these prophecies circulating, particularly in the period of the Great Western uh, Schism we discussed before. And a great way to make the argument that your pope is the real pope and the other pope is the bad pope is to basically claim that the bad pope is uh, actually antichrist showing up and trying to seize control of the church which will be a prelude to the uh, to the end of the world we had lots of questions on antipopes bobby cannon sweden hungary catherine 0411 again um so i hope that answers those questions there is one specific one i wanted to offer up to you brett because i just loved the phrasing of this if a pope and an antipope were ever brought together would they explode? They, that would be the end of the space-time continuum at that point. It's, it's a bit droll, but it did make me wonder, was there a case where two papal claimants went to war to actually duke it out for the papal seat? Like As I mentioned before, when you got, say, the British, or uh, the English, rather, right, and the French backing their respective popes, and, and remember, too, that the Pope in Rome was the landlord of much of central Italy, right, and had allies. And so popes never really have armies, right? There's, there isn't really like a papal army, but popes have allies, so they have vassals and who, who have armies, right? As we just saw with the First Crusade, popes can summon soldiers and, and call upon them, and that worked for Urban when the Crusaders drove Clement out of Rome. So... I don't know of an instance ever where like these two popes were out in the front of their their armies duking it out on the battlefield. But when you had popes and anti-popes clashing, they had allies and boots on the ground that could maybe be fighting for like a variety of reasons, but would also be representing their respective pope. I'm trying to think if there's ever an instance of a pope and an anti-pope like sitting down at a church council and hashing it out. And I cannot think of one off the top of my head. That is, by the way, how the Great Schism gets ended. In the around 1413, 1415, there's a couple of church councils that are called, and representatives from all around Europe show up and try to hash it out, right? And, and, and that is, that's another period, getting back to your primus inter pares uh, question, first among equals. That's another point coming out of the Great Western Schism where you see certain intellectuals in the church saying, you know what, I, one way out of this mess of all these popes, and at one point, by the way, the council elects a third pope, so you get a pope in Avignon, you get a pope in Rome, and you have a new pope elected by the council of Constance. This is in, I think, about like 1415, I think. So now you get three popes, and one of the ways out of this, some people feel, is to basically give back ultimate governing power over the church to councils, to like collective assemblies of bishops. That position doesn't really win out, but it, it's a moment where you get the idea that ultimate authority resides in the kind of collectivity. And eventually they get all the other popes. I think one runs off to Spain and just kind of bitter, you know, and dies saying he's still pope. And I think another one of the popes steps down. And then Martin V emerges out of the uh, Council of Constance as as the sole pope. So in, in that 
instance, it wasn't like a battlefield confrontation, but backroom negotiations and arm twisting that eventually ended the schism. You did say something interesting there that uh, Waterfist on Instagram asked about whether the papal states had its own armies. And you kind of said they didn't uh, already, but it did make me wonder... The papal states we've talked a bit about, as well as being this spiritual head, the Pope is at that time a secular leader. He has a, essentially a nation state. So what is the papal states kind of the extent of its influence over the Italian peninsula? And just might add on, if it doesn't have an army, how does it do that? As the years have gone by and some of my own research and writing, I, I started to become more and more obsessed with the papal states. Was, I mentioned like papal antichrist before. I've always been fascinated by the Pope's kind of reputation on a symbolic level around Europe, right? The Pope as the leader of the Christian world, you know, the Pope is the figure that calls crusades. The Pope is the heir to St. Peter. But one of the really important aspects of the papacy and its significance in the Middle Ages really is grounded in, in the idea that the Pope is also the temporal, the worldly Lord of much of central Italy. Again, the, this goes back to the early Middle Ages, right? That the popes have these vast estates in, in the Italian peninsula. And then uh, the Carolingians under Charlemagne start to formalize this. They, they recognize that the pope is the ruler of much of central Italy. On the flip side, this is always kind of contested, right? Because these German emperors that we talked about in the 11th and 12th centuries, they claim authority over all of northern Italy, like Lombardy and that northern Italian area, right? And then in the 11th century, the Normans, they aren't, they aren't just invading England, by the way, in the, the late 11th century. There are Normans that invade southern Italy and take over southern Italy and eventually Sicily. So at that point, you have the Normans ruling over southern Italy and you've got the German kings claiming authority over northern Italy with all these different Italian city-states, right? You know, Genoa and Venice. And, and so at that point, the papal states are kind of squeezed in the middle, right? And I think one of the big concerns of the papacy in the Middle Ages is to maintain the autonomy of its rulership over central Italy. And starting with Frederick II in the 13th century, through his mother, he winds up becoming the ruler of southern Italy. So suddenly you have the, the Roman emperor ruling over Germany, northern Italy, and southern Italy. And at that point, the papacy is like really feeling squeezed in the middle, that they might just be absorbed. And talking about like what sort of actual levers does do the popes have, at one point, Gregory IX gets into a fight with Frederick II, and he calls for all of his allies and supporters to invade southern Italy and attack Frederick's holdings. And Frederick, ironically, is excommunicated and on crusade. So he's like off in Jerusalem. The pope summons allies who invade Frederick's kingdom, and they don't do so with under the sign of the cross. They're not exactly crusaders, but they use the uh, papal symbol of the keys, which are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So you've got all these troops of like local allies of the popes, and they also raise money. There's actually, you can read in these English chronicles that they're raising, trying to get money from England, from France, from Germany, down to pay for mercenaries and to pay for troops to march into Southern Italy under the papal banner of the keys to fight against Frederick. Just in the in the kind of wider context, obviously the papacy has endured since you know since the fall of Rome, and it still endures today. The papal states has had a much kind of shorter lifespan. I just want to get a framing of when it kind of wanes. You know, we mentioned before the Great Schism, the Great Western Schism, when Martin V is elected pope out of the Council of Constance, and the whole schism's over. Right? There's one pope again. He goes back to Rome, but a in that period of the late Middle Ages, the 1400s heading into the 1500s, this is when you really start to see the Pope becoming almost more like another Renaissance prince ruling over 
his principality in Italy, right? At that point, you do get to the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s. You see these different kingdoms and, and basically like nations breaking away, some of them, not all of them, from the Pope. In the late Middle Ages, early modern period, the Pope is still the spiritual leader of the Catholic Church, but his political reach at that point is really kind of effectively confined to the papal states. And, and that's when you get like the Medici popes and, and these kind of like Renaissance popes that are, are starting to look a lot like a, a prince ruling over a Renaissance state on the Italian peninsula. And then this is getting past my period. I'm a medievalist, but eventually you get to like the 19th century and the creation of the Italian nation. And the papal states at that point are really shrunk down to this, you know, relative postage stamp size territory and which is like the Vatican today, right? That little teeny independent country that's in the middle of, of Rome. So whenever you go to the Vatican, if you're in Rome and you, you know, you see the Swiss guard out there and you, you're seeing the vestige, you're seeing the, the persistent little territory that was once a broad papal principality that encompassed most of, of central Italy. And that was the papal states. Wow, it's quite a journey. We do get a bit outside of medieval papacy. Let's dial it back. We've talked all about anti-popes. How about uncle popes? So to what extent do you feel that nepotism is kind of like intrinsic with the kind of the papal state sustaining itself? Because it has that quite reputation of the, every pope has at least four nephews who are cardinals. What we would now call nepotism, which you know wasn't really, I think, the way people viewed it in the Middle Ages, right? was something going on in churches around Europe in the Middle Ages, right? If you were the lord of wherever and you founded a monastery and you paid for it, right? You, you donated the property, you helped, you helped build the monastery. Why wouldn't you want your, your brother to be the first abbot, right? Bishops were supposed to be celibate or not, not married, but in fact, it was not uncommon in the, say, 11th century for a parish priest or a bishop to be married and have kids kind of on the side, right? Everyone kind of knew it in the village, right? And then the, the, the bishop's kids might very well be appointed to positions in the church. So this was kind of common practice when the church was so deeply woven into the fabric of society and the political life, the way we've been discussing, it, it was common, right? And, and so the, and what I'm getting at here, right, is like the papacy was no exception in that regard. I will add, though, this is part of what the reformers we were talking about before in the 11th century wanted to change. They were like, you know what? The church should not be wound up in worldly relationships like this. And, uh, you know, a, a priest should not have kids and give church property to his kids. So even at the time, there were kind of critics of Uncle Pope, right? And, and always this, they didn't use the word nepotism, but they knew that, like, you know, you shouldn't be doling out church. There was also a big concern with, it's called simony which was considered a sin, when you tried to buy a clerical office, people were like, well, that's, that's not how you're supposed to become a, a, an abbot. <laughs> you're, supposed to be, you're supposed to be a holy person, not, not bribing your way into it. We're talking about buying offices. Um, actually, it's a nice segue into another question about whether any popes were particularly well known for using their position to line their pockets. I, I know a lot less about these late medieval Renaissance popes getting into like the what, like 1490s and early 1500s. But I do think the Borgia popes, right? The, I think there was a Netflix series about this uh, at one point, right? I, again, this is almost getting out of the Middle Ages into more of the early medieval papacy. But again, I think that's a period where the popes were very much in this position of um, ruling over the, the papal states like a kind of renaissance princes and they i think were doing pretty well for themselves i would remind us though you know some of that money they had did go towards creating things like the sistine chapel with michelangelo's paintings and some of the most 
you know, iconic pieces of Renaissance art. So I guess they, they might have lined their own pockets, but they, they also did spend lavishly on some pretty amazing artwork. That's that's true. It seems like we're in the scandal section of the podcast because I've got a couple of questions about basically papal lustfulness. So HH Homemade on Instagram would like to know, this is quite broad, just how promiscuous were they? NCOST72 also on Instagram wants to know who were their mistresses. Are there any popes who had particular renown for let's say, extramarital relations. Or actually, this is another question. Has there ever been a married pope? Because they're, they're supposed to be celibate, right? Yeah. And, and suppose, there's this whole legend of Pope Joan, by the way, that supposedly there was a woman. I, I don't know if it's real. I don't think it is. But it was, a, it was a late medieval legend that this woman had been disguised as a monk and eventually wound up becoming pope. And then when she died, they figured out when they were like preparing her body for burial, like, wait a minute, this is a woman. I think that, that was kind of a late medieval legend that, that grew up. But uh I think it depends on, again, this gets back to this question, right, of things change over the course of the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, so Gregory the Great, Gregory the First, Pope in 590, who's considered one of the saintly popes. Uh, I am pretty confident Gregory was not sleeping around, right? I'm pretty confident Urban II, who declared the First Crusade, was did not have a mistress. Pope Innocent III, who's probably one of the most powerful popes of the Middle Ages in the early 1200s, uh, I am confident he was he was not sneaking women into the the Lateran church for, for, for parodies, right? John the Twelfth. He's the one that was accused of like worshiping demons and having these debauched parodies and having mistresses. The the Borgia Popes are, are accused of this in the in the Renaissance. If you're looking for a wild parody, go to like the Renaissance or the Papal Dark Ages. Don't go to Urban the Second's Papal Court. I don't think there's many wild parodies then. <laughs> That was Brett Whalen, professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His books include The Two Powers, The Papacy, The Empire and The Struggle for Sovereignty in the 13th Century, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019. If you're intrigued by some of the stories in this episode, check out Your Dead to Me's episode on the early medieval papacy, available now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.